The Money Cafe is brought to you by Eureka Report, your one-stop shop for all things finance. To sign up for your free 15-day trial, head to eurekareport.com.au. Now it's time to enjoy today's episode. I'm Stephen Main, contributor at Eureka Report, founder of Crikey, shareholder advocate, City of Manningham councillor, and a former policy and engagement coordinator at the Australian Shareholders Association. So I'm delighted that we're joined on the Money Cafe this week by Fiona Bowser, the current policy and advocacy manager at the Australian Shareholders Association. So welcome, Fiona. Alan's on his second week of leave, and fantastically, we have a female voice on the Money Cafe for the second week in a row after Olivia Long and James Thompson did a great job last week. So a special ASA edition of the Money Cafe looking at all things advocacy, governance and AGMs given that the AGM season is coming up. So Fiona, let's start. Tell us about your role at the ASA. I used to think it was one of the toughest jobs going around. You're basically in charge of what, 100 volunteers covering a couple of hundred companies every year? That's about right. I think it's 120 volunteers at the moment and uh, we attend about 300 AGMs a year but we're more intense on the first 140 of them. Uh, And for us the hardest thing, as you'll recall, is most of the companies hold their AGM in the last quarter of the year. October, November, December, 85% of the AGMs that our group attends take place then. Yes, it's an absolute deluge. So uh, not easy. I did. I did laugh one time when uh, the billionaire Twiggy Forrest uh, told our Perth monitoring team that the ASA was quote a small organisation with a big sounding name. <laughs> now, um, but people forget that the ASA actually gets about five billion dollars a year of undirected proxies. So it actually does have quite a bit of voting aggregation power when you consider those numbers. And I think too that many companies want to address their retail shareholder base, these providers of capital who tend to hang on for about 10 years. And to do that, they need to talk to them. But when you CBA with 850,000 shareholders, it's probably hard to talk to individuals but we have people uh, who go and represent those retail shareholders to the companies. And the concerns that our membership base have are the same as those that exist amongst all the other smaller shareholders. So talking to ASA is a way of finding out what they need to do better. And one of the things that people don't realise about ASA is about a 1,000 members each month uh, meet up in branches and have little roundtable discussions. So our Manningham branch has about 30 members and on the second Tuesday of every month for two hours we uh, we sit around and talk all things shares for two hours, sometimes with a guest speaker, sometimes just amongst ourselves and then pop off to lunch afterwards. So it's a really nice social engagement and it's a great way of, uh, of sharing insights with other uh, well-informed um, retail investors. Now, I want to ask you, do you've got quite a bit of power because you can influence the debate at AGMs and, of course, you can vote. You know, Sometimes you've got up to half a billion dollars worth of undirected proxies at a, at, a, at a CBA or a CSL or a Woolworths, so really big companies. Do you get charm offensives from directors and chairman and CEOs sort of sucking up to ASA and trying to persuade you to vote in favour? And, and, and what sort of access do you get to the company chairs? I, I think 
Many companies are quite mature about how they approach their investment relations task and they don't so much do the suck up and they can cope if we vote against them. Others are are likely to to use that charm offensive and occasionally we get the um, you know, talk to the hand type response. Um, types of influence we can have is you know, the, representing the retail shareholders and pointing out the types of issues that the company will face at their AGM and um, opening that up to the companies. Most of them, almost all of them, agree to meet us and we meet the directors rather than the executives uh, because they are the ones who are charged with coordinating the whole company and managing, you know, setting up the strategy, determining who the CEO is, figuring out the remuneration and what's appropriate and what will work for the long term. So we meet with those directors before the AGM, which is a great opportunity to uh, check our facts because sometimes when a company writes something, it doesn't land with the uh, readers of the report in the same way as the company intended. So we check our facts and we also raise what our concerns are. number of times that a company will have a really tragic year or three and they think that it's okay to pay their executives more. Um, first step to get some reality check is to have that pre-AGM meeting. And as we've seen over the years, um, that usually, any criticism is often followed up by a first strike on that remuneration report. Mm. Now, what are the hot-button issues for ASA this season uh, as opposed to, to other seasons? Are there particular areas of ad- advocacy or policy that you're, you're alert to for the coming season? Well, for this season, we've seen uh, the initial companies, uh, when they're deemed okay, they're getting 99% of the shares voting in favour of their resolutions. Uh, issues that I see are companies that have had uh, disappointing governance or other outcomes. So AGL, the Star Entertainment Group, have had you know really bad years. And then for the other uh, concern is retention payments. With uh, companies considering it is really hard to find new staff. They have sometimes thrown money at the people that are in power now mm. and uh, we'll be picking those those up because we don't agree that you just pay money to keep the people in the job. Really, you need to, if you do need to pay above the odds to keep your team going, you need to make sure they only get the extra money if their efforts are rewarded by an outcome. So that might be a better share price or... Um, the profits growing or yeah. not having breaches. Yes. Now, we'll get into a couple of those individual companies like AGL uh, and Star in a moment, but just last general question. So I was talking to a private equity boss uh, this week who runs about uh, $6 billion, and he was gloating that his companies do so much better because the, the, the CEO has genuine skin in the game. The directors aren't distracted by all these ESG issues like, you know, gender and climate and diversity and remuneration. They can just get on with focusing on the financials and running the business. What do you think about that question that public companies are now too distracted by sort of ESG or non-financial issues and and, and aren't putting enough time and effort into just, you know, getting a decent return for shareholders? Uh, 
two things come to mind. Uh, again, talking about the maturity of a company, a good company is climate literate, uh, diversity literate, uh, anti-money laundering laws literate, and being public or private doesn't give the company any advantage. And I think the other thing to note is that private equity, they don't have the their process and progress judged every day on the market. Um, they just basically is no one telling them that their share price would have tanked today if, um, you know, that the information that became public was public. Um, they also can tolerate down years much more easily. They have insight in the company. When you're a publicly listed company, you have people providing capital from outside the company and they are reliant on the board and the communications of that company to give them the information they need to manage their investments. Mm. Private equity, they're in the room. They're, they're at the board meetings. They have representatives um, within the company. If the company needs more money, they generally can find either find money or determine they'll sell. It's totally different ball game, and I think that what they call success uh, might not actually be success because if they fail on anti-money laundering, they will get fined. If they have um, climate breaches, they won't be able to get capital as cheaply as other other groups. So, they don't get as attacked as much. So, I mean, Origin Energy this week has, has walked away from the Beetaloo Basin and all their upstream gas acreage after a sustained campaign by various climate, green and Indigenous groups uh, putting up shareholder resolutions, you know, three, four years now they've been doing it. So if, if you know, if it was a private equity company that was looking for gas in the Beetaloo, it just wouldn't get that sort of attention that the public company companies get. So I think it's, I almost think it's more of an issue in terms of being attacked by activists than sort of being distracted by REM disclosure or diversity disclosure. But uh, it's, you know, it's an interesting debate and, um, you know, there is more and more private equity these days in a Sydney airport and um, Osnet, just a couple of companies that have disappeared into private ownership in the last uh, 12 months. I want to cover off on a few upcoming AGMs. Firstly, can you believe Horizon, the old Queensland Rail, their meeting is in Townsville. Now, thank goodness... It's a hybrid meeting. So it means I can sit here in my pyjamas in Manningham in Melbourne and ask a few questions online. And one question I will be asking is, why is Russell Kaplan, who's 76 years old, been on the board for 12 years, spent 42 years at Shell, he's a bit of an old fossil fuel guy, why is he seeking three more years? Have you got a view about directors who've already done 12 years who, who want to go again? They're, they're no longer independent, are they? Yeah, we... We have a view that once you've been around for, for more than 12 years that you are no longer independent, but we also look at the whole board and um, a board should have older older you know, incumbents, people who've been there for a few years and new incumbents. You often see problems where some a board's stultifying, nobody's been appointed for 10 years and then when they try to, they're unable to keep new directors because they've kind of lost the plot. Mm. Um, so the, you know, our concession would be that the board needs to be overall independent. Yeah. And, I mean, um, I'm a big believer in the in the 12-year rule. I mean, unless you can say that this particular 
director is an absolute legend and is pivotal to the company. But, I mean, this company's based in Queensland. Russell lives in Melbourne. He's just one of ten directors. It's not as if, you know, something big's going to be different because he retires after 12 years, so I'll be speaking and voting against him. Mm. And what about Suncor? They were meant to have their AGM on Thursday and they got bumped by Albo's public holiday for the Queen, so they've actually switched it to Friday. Yeah, I haven't seen that before. No, I haven't seen that before. I will admit in my lifetime I have never seen a public holiday called out of the the blue. Yes. Um, And that's down to the Queen um, being in rain for more than my lifetime. Yeah. Um, You would have thought the the Suncor directors could have just worked anyway because shareholders have more time to actually attend. I mean, I I think they didn't need to cancel the damn thing. And it meant to change a time, date and location and I am not sure what, what went into the decision. I reckon um, more AGMs, more AGMs should be on outside of business hours in the evening. Like all sporting clubs and stuff have their AGMs in the evening. The RSL has their AGM on a Saturday. This idea that the public companies have to have their AGMs during work hours when a lot of shareholders are working, I reckon that's all wrong. I reckon they should go back to the days of you know the big Lend Lease evening AGM, which used to get you know five hundred plus shareholders coming along for a big evening session. Well, I'll just stand up for having business hour AGMs. Many of our participants have difficulty travelling outside uh, regular time. You're basically condemning them to get their own way to town, which might be different if you're already working in the city, but for someone who lives regionally, it it would be an added degree of difficulty. But that's where the old hybrid meeting has positive power. Love the hybrid, love the hybrid, and a shame on Commonwealth Bank this year for going for a, a physical AGM at the MCG as if they're going to fill it, and not offering an ability for shareholders to ask live online questions. I mean, you can listen to the webcast, but it's like watching television. You can't actually do a talkback phone call equivalent by ringing in or lodging an online question that then gets read out by a, a moderator and the board addresses it live. We have given them a brickbat for that decision because there are all sorts of reasons why you can't make it to the Melbourne uh, cricket ground to to participate in person. It, yeah, no, it allows for people working in firm. We had someone who was uh, planning to attend a meeting in person and came down with COVID the night before. They weren't very um, well, so they could just switch to hybrid. So we. Our long preference is hybrid meetings. It allows much more participation. Yeah, I could I could not agree more. So also shame on Origin Energy, which is going for a physical only. They don't want to get uh, uh, harassed. And Star Entertainment as well, up on the Gold Coast uh, in November, and uh, it's a physical it's a fi- it's a physical meeting. And uh, I should say with Star that um, they're looking for three or four new directors. And I'm just amazed that the, the, the guy who did the independent report, Adam Bell SC, I'm amazed he gave four, the four in, incumbents the green light to continue on as directors, even though they've been there for quite a while, at the same time as he's re- revealed all sorts of disgraceful stuff, um, which I should say James Packer was telling me this week reckons was um, even worse than was found at Crown. Yeah, both those um, gaming companies have really had bad report cards and you'd say that that's kind of the first thing that any board or executive in a gaming company should be sure of, that anti-money laundering and the proper rules that are associated with gaming have been followed. It's almost like you shouldn't be able to walk out of the, the boardroom if that's not ticked off as being 
more than hunky-dory. Yeah, no, exactly right. And the great thing about the hybrid AGM is, you can, I mean, I went to eight AGMs in one day last year, and I'll give you an example of uh, October 18 coming up. We've got Endeavour Group at 9am. It's at the Sydney Wentworth Hotel, but it's also online, so I'll be sitting at home doing it online. And then at 10am, you've got uh, the Treasury Wine Estates, the Grand Hyatt in Melbourne, plus online. And then you've got Cochlear, 10am, at Macquarie University in Western Sydney at their headquarters. I mean, who can get out to there? Also online, 10am start. Helios, 11am hybrid, Sydney Four Seasons, plus online. Uh, BKI, the Brickworks Investment Fund, 11am hybrid. If you, you can either go to the Brickworks Design Studio in Barrack Street or you can participate online. And then Brambles, you can go to the Fullerton Hotel in Martin Place in Sydney or you can participate online. So I'll get to probably five or six of those without leaving home. We'll all be thinking of you wearing your pyjamas while you're asking the questions. <laughs> it is. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Now, we should talk about AGL as well because that's going to be a, a cracker on November 15. Mm. I should say the deadline for nominations is November is September 27. So if any of our listeners fancy putting themselves up for the AGL board because uh, Mike Cannon-Brooks and uh, the incumbent directors and the institutions seem to be struggling to agree who should be the new long-term directors, I've got a good one this week in Miles George, the old uh, Infogen CEO. But uh, yeah, I'm surprised they've gone for an internal new chair in Patricia McKenzie when I would have thought going outside was the solution. Yeah, we were expecting someone from outside, but that is not to say that she can't do a repeat of Catherine Livingston's fix the Commonwealth Bank after the Royal Commission Um strategy and implementation and more importantly reporting to people that that the implementation has been ticked off so yeah big challenge for her and I hope that all the directors in that company dig deep to get the company where it has to go I I agree I agree uh, uh, Livingston is the best turnaround chair in the country she turned both Telstra and uh, CBA around I personally would like to see Lindsay Tanner put his hand up for AGL because he He's quite tough and he understands the politics and he's got good connections to the Albanese government, which you know, any regulated company needs, plus he gets business and he's a clean skin. So, uh, But, look, we'll see how Patricia goes. I'm just glad the two old bosses, uh, Peter Botton, the chair, and Graham Hunt, the CEO, I'm glad they're out because uh, they really were old sort of fossil fuel types um, and just hadn't got with the program with, with clean energy. And so I think... Uh, yeah, and interesting to see who Mike Cannon-Brooks uh, eventually uh, gets on the board representing him. Mm. Now, yeah. we should uh, we should probably deal with a few uh, questions from our readers. Uh, we've got five, I think, to get through this week. And the first is from John, which I'll let you ask, Fiona. Yeah, John, John asks, if you can comment on the multifaceted issues of Qantas having a share buyback of $400 million worth of shares, um, does it help prop up the share prices and allow the management to meet their KPIs and get more bonuses? Well, I mean, technically it can if because uh, if you do buy 400 million bucks worth of shares during, particularly if it's during the pricing period for the LTI bonus calculation, then you know, it could technically have an influence on the total shareholder return outcome. But I think the Qantas pricing period is June 30 next year. And they started the buyback on September 12th. They've already spent $40 million. So if they get the buyback done and dusted by sort of May 
well, then it's not going to be influencing the share price. So, like, I don't think we should say it's a cynical attempt to get yourself a bigger bonus. I do think it's pretty bizarre that Qantas hasn't paid a dividend for three years, literally three years. September 23, 2019 was the last time they paid a dividend. Yet they're out there spending up to $400 million buying back their stock. Now, I suspect it's driven by um, lack of franking credits uh, to pay dividends and also it's a bit difficult to pay dividends when you've made a big loss. Um, but, yeah, it's, a, it's an unusual capital management situation to have a company that's been on a dividend holiday for three years doing buybacks. You don't often see that. Yeah, I wholly agree on that one. No, and the Qantas AGM is going to be fun, I mean, because uh, they're getting smashed by their customers at the moment. See, they've just cancelled ve- vegetarian meals on short-haul flights. That's their latest attempt to upset their customers and you know, illegally sacking their workers and Alan Joyce getting paid too much. I think their AGM at the Wesley Centre... I think it was in the, it's in November. That's going to be uh, that's going to be quite one to watch, and uh, thankfully it is a hybrid. Yes, I've looked it up. November the fourth. It is a hybrid at the Wesley Centre or on the phone and, and internet. So that's one to definitely mark in the diary to uh, to get some action. Now we've also got a question from Luke who says, like Telstra, ANZ and NAB take people's surplus DRP as well and give it to charity. It's absolutely crook. Can someone please get onto this? Now, we have had this discussion about DRPs before um, where some some companies just take the surplus and give it to charity. It's a bit of a controversial area. Have you got a view on that, uh, Fiona? Uh, our view is that before you go into a DRP, you really need to read the rules and I would be very surprised if that is not listed in the rules for the DRP and it would have been voted in favour of, perhaps with a raft of other changes in the constitution. Um, so I would be surprised if it's just someone thought, oh, we could make a good charitable donation. Um that said, there's a lot of cost in DRPs and managing, you know, the holdings. So do you have unders and overs? Um, the theory is you shouldn't lose every year, but you can lose up to the share price. So, you know, yeah. Telstra, well, less than $5, you're definitely not going to lose fi- more than $5 every six months. But by you go, if Macquarie Group or CSL had a DRP and they had that policy, it'd cost you a fortune because uh, you know, CSL shares are at 285 bucks or something. Yeah, and even the theory unders and overs that maybe if you just rounded up, um, if they were under 50 cents and, up, uh, you know, rounded down otherwise, um, you still end up with winners and losers. Yeah. So, I prefer the, I prefer the you know, particularly with my tiny holdings, you know, usually 10 shares in 300 companies, I've got quite a lot like, uh, you know, Woodside and I think even West Farmers where, you know, it takes me four years to get a new share, but it does sit there fractionally building in the account and they send me a statement each year. So I must say I prefer that rather than the Telstra, unless you opt out, we'll give it to charity because I've had a reader write in Rowan who makes a point that uh, he got in in strife with his SMSF auditor because he was making charitable donations, which was a breach of the sole purpose test, Section 62 of the Superannuation Industry Act, where you're not allowed to dish off uh, cash to uh, to charity. So I'm not so sure about that because uh, it's actually Telstra giving the money to charity as opposed to the super fund. 
But that is an interesting point, and I do think. And he and he's, he then said he tried to ring up Telstra because he couldn't get out of the policy online, and he was on the on the phone for two hours, and eventually gave up and he sold his shares. So um, Telstra should, you know, improve their customer service with shareholders and maybe not make the default system that you give all the surplus uh, to charity. Yeah, maybe they can put that to shareholders next year. Yes, indeed. Now, Pete says, I couldn't help but chuckle when you and Alan, uh, Stephen, uh, got stuck into the money me capital raising, which was a disaster. I don't know if you've seen the electro-optic systems capital raise that was announced in June when the share price was $1.50 and the institutional placement was at $1.20. The EOS share price tanked thereafter. The company didn't even meet the August 31 reporting deadline and on all, on on September 8 announced a loss of $100 million with no prior profit warning. The stock's now at $0.50 cents and uh, it's been a disaster. At what point are publicly listed companies held accountable for lack of disclosure to their shareholders? Well, sounds like a shocker, Fiona. Electro-optic systems. If they did not warn uh, about that impending loss, yeah, they will be held accountable. There's likely to be a class action. Uh, it's a sadder story than that description because it started 12 months ago above $3. So even getting to 150 and 120 was very disappointing. Um, so if, if they have, if people have bought shares because they've been misled by the company's disclosures, that is where a class action will be possible. Um, it's just a question of reading the, the – they they were hit hard by COVID though. Um, yes, and so they're a very know. rare beast on our market. They're a defence industry contractor. We don't have the great military-industrial complex in Australia like the US. Canberra-based company, Peter Lays, the chairman, a former defence uh, department heavy. Katie Lundy was on the board. She was a Labor politician in Canberra with sort of uh, you know, some sort of defence expertise. But, look, it's been an absolute shocker. It sounds like there may be a class action uh, coming. And I have to say, I've gone back and had a look at capital raisings this year. I reckon this has probably been the worst year I've seen in terms of capital raisings that have ended up badly underwater for shareholders. And I'll sort of mention a couple. So Orica, they did a placement at $16 in August. The SPP was at $15.29 based on the VWAP and the stock's now at $14.32. So, you know, investors have really taken a hit on that. And then you've got something like Domain Holdings, which, you know, controlled by nine, competes with REA Group. They did a $180 million raising at $3.80 and the stock's now $3.24. And Abacus Property Group did a $200 million placement in April at $3.38. The stock's now $2.71. You've even got um, you know, Macquarie Group did a, um, a capital raising at $190. The stock's now $194. The stock's now $172. MA Financial Group, the old Mollus, did a big placement in an SPP at $7.75. The stock's now $4.34 because they've been flogged by this significant investor visa policy change out of Canberra where they were the biggest promoters of those significant investor visas and Labor's just gone, bang, we're not doing this anymore, and the share price fell 20%. So I reckon this has been a terrible year for capital raisings. It's been the odd good one. Stanmore Resources, probably the best. They raised $694 million at $1.10 in March to buy BHP's uh, Bowen Basin coal mines. And the stock's now $2.22. So they've ridden the 
coal price boom and double their share price on the capital raising price. But overall, this has been a year to avoid the capital raisings that have been offered because the majority of them are underwater, sadly. Yep, this is why you need to be a bit long-term and also have a plan. Don't just take everything that gets shown to you. No, exactly right. Now, I think uh, Gary's got a question uh, yep. on the SPPs, I think. Um, yeah, Gary's question is about AUI and DUI, um, Australian United Investments and Diversified United Investments, the listed investment companies. They've announced a share purchase plan. He doesn't get why an LIC needs to raise capital. Please explain. All right. Well, LICs actually are the most common users of share purchase plans because they're usually, they don't have any institutional shareholders, so they, they don't do placements. Um, so they, they tend not to do rights issues. So they often do SPP, so the likes of Argo and AFIC, uh, you know, between all the big LICs, I reckon there'd, be, there'd, there'd have been 20 or 30 SPPs over the last decade. And so AUI is 41% owned by the Serene Potter Foundation. It's a $1.2 billion LIC with 5,700 shareholders. So they're offering those shareholders a chance to put up $171 million if all of them take up the full $30,000. Um, and I think that, that would be good because you, you get scale, um, you know, you want to grow. And um, a lot of these LICs are too small, so I think there should be consolidation. I personally think AUI and DUI should merge and create one $2.3 billion LIC rather than having two sort of siblings because the Serene Potter Foundation owns 20% of the other one, DUI, which is capped at uh, at $1 billion. But the, the, the offers in particular are, are pretty much right on the market price, so they're not looking particularly attractive and they're not offering much of a VWAP discount. In fact, there's no VWAP discount. So I can't see a compelling case for going into it. But if you've got 30000 sitting lazily around, you know, they've been a good conservative LIC for a while and they're probably worth supporting. And interestingly, the chairman, Charlie Good, who was very close to the Potter family, he's up for election at both AGMs coming up and he's now 84 and uh, he's going to go again, but he's doing hybrids. So even Charlie's got with the program and is offering online questions, even though he's a bit old school in sending me, uh, I think he still sends out annual reports, which is a bit of a dinosaur thing from an ESG point of view. But uh, yeah, a couple of a couple of uh, SPPs that are worth supporting, good, good LICs, conservatively managed. And uh, if you've got some spare cash, they're probably worth supporting. And we've got another question t- from uh, Todd. And he is talking about Magellan. After taking a 60% share price bath on Magellan after Hamish Douglas left, it made me wonder what would happen to Tesla if Elon was to unexpectedly no longer be around. Also, do you think founder-led companies tend to outperform others? Well, history does show that founder-led companies do tend to outperform. Uh, And there's many examples in Australia, I'd particularly point to the likes of uh, Seek um, and uh, and car sales and and things like uh, ARB, um, Dicker Data, Wise Tech. You know, there's there's many examples of very successful founder-led companies. Interesting question, though. If 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 Elon Musk resigned from Tesla, what would happen? Look, if he if he got sacked, like Apple foolishly sacked Steve Jobs back in the day. 
And if he if he then announced that he was going to sell all his Tesla shares and he was going to start a, a electric car division at Twitter, uh, the new t- Twitter EV after he buys Twitter for forty four billion, that would be a disaster for Tesla because he'd then burgle half the talent who he recruited in the first place, and he'd be a very damaging competitor. If instead he fell under the proverbial bus and was simply no longer around but wasn't sledging, then I think it would prosper. I mean, the company's currently capped at $968 billion US dollars. It's a machine. Um, and just like Apple has prospered under Steve Jobs, after Steve Jobs left under Tim Cook, I think Tesla would would go pretty well because he's a pretty crazy guy, Elon. And um, I think that the system that he's built is, uh, you know, um uh, uh, key man proof unless he was to compete against them, which I don't think he's going to do because he owns a, he owns a 15% of a trillion-dollar company. Okay, and i just add to the founder-led companies that on the other side we've had a few failures as well. I'm thinking of Imagineering, showing my age here, Imagineering and Jody Rich, for example. We've had founder-led companies that have fallen apart. Oh, Bab- Babcock and Brown. Um, look, there's been absolutely, yeah, look, there have been many, and that's when you get the big hero whose ego drives it, you know, John Elliott at Foster's. Um, but, yeah, but overall, uh, I think skin in the game and having highly motivated experts with emotional uh, drive you know, from Elon Musk and Steve Jobs down uh, and Google and Facebook, they, <laughs> there's so many examples of, of great success. You've just got to pick the right horse to get on in terms of a genius founder who's got motivation to continue to prosper in the public company space. I'll, I'll make it a bit better with Domino's and Flight Centre. Yes. On the plus plus side. So, yes, we do have a lot of founders who do well. And Flight Centre is a great example of not not being immature, not conforming necessarily to what you expect from an ASX 200 company, but prepared to explain why they they are different and, and what it is that they're trying to do by being different. And I really value that when a company comes to us and goes, we don't want to tick a box this is why, yeah. and then they carry through. Yeah, no, exactly. Like Brian McNamee is chairman of uh, CSL. He wasn't the founder as such, but he was the he was the CEO when it floated. He turned a $300 million company into a $150 billion company. He's come back as the chairman, happy to ignore all the governance rules because he's a legend with a magnificent scoreboard performance. Now, Fiona, I should say before we wind up, if anyone wants to join the ASA, I think it's only about $100 40 bucks for an online membership or 165 for the year if you want to also get 10 copies of the printed magazine equity. Recommended if you're particularly interested in governance issues, you can read all the voting intention reports for 150 companies on how the ASA is going to vote, what the governance issues are. But look, thanks for listening uh, today's special ASA episode of the Money Cafe. Alan, we'll be back next week with the AFR's Shana Clear columnist, James Thompson. Don't forget to email through your questions to themoneycafe at eurekareport.com.au. Until next time, I'm Stephen Main, Eureka contributor, Crikey founder, shareholder advocate and City of Manningham councillor. And I'm Fiona Balzer, Head of Policy and Advocacy at the Australian Shareholders Association. And we've been, and we've been the, the Money, Money Cafe. Cafe. Thanks, Fiona. Talk to you soon, everyone.